You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. Uh, Welcome to week three of our class, How Christianity Saves Civilization and Can Do So Again. And, uh, oh, tonight's going to be fun, I think. It'll be at least controversial. It, It might be fun. Um, the big idea of this class, just as a reminder, is this. The extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. You may not realize it, but uh, you already hold particularly Christian-ish views, even if you're not a Christian. And the fact is that um, that you think these values and these ideas are natural or obvious or universal, self-evident, but in fact, they're not. They are a result of a revolution that has shaped, uh, that has shaped this world. And so the air that we breathe, the values that we hold dear, are a product of a revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. Through a person and an event, the, the person is Jesus Christ, and the event is his life, death, and resurrection. And this Jesus revolution has had a tremendous effect upon this world. And it's an understatement, it's an understatement to say that Western civilization has been deeply shaped by Christian truths. Now, last week, we looked at equality. The idea of equality. And we and we began with the awkward question, where does this idea that all human beings are equal, where does this idea come from? And we discovered that the value of a person, the idea that a person has an intrinsic value, is actually a result of this revolution. And one of the principles, and you're going to hear me say it at least twice tonight, maybe three times, and I've said it a number of times as we need to get this, is that theology shapes what? Anthropology. Theology, how we think of God, shapes how we think of each other. And it was a biblical notion that we are made in the image of God that confers value onto every human being. Um, It's this biblical notion that was a basis for human rights. And these ideas of value and equality are not self-evident. They have not been self-evident through much of history. And they certainly weren't evident, self-evident in the Roman Empire. Because in the Roman Empire, we see something very different. We see a highly stratified society. We have a society uh, where at the top you have the philosopher kings, and you have the military, then you have the artisans, and then you have women, and then you have slaves or barbarians and when when socrates says know thyself he's not asking you to existentially just look inside yourself but he's saying know yourself and figure where you are in society and stay there and so the reason why you and i have a gut reaction when we hear stories of racism the reason why we, 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 we cringe whenever one group elevates itself over another group is rooted in the assumptions about human beings that, like it or not, are Christian. These ideas are Christian. And so tonight, what I'd like to do is shift our attention. 
Tonight, what I'd like to do is shift our attention towards the family and, and look at how the Christian revolution reshaped many of our assumptions we have concerning things like marriage, family, and sex. So we're going to talk about family, we'll talk about marriage, and we'll save the best for last. We'll talk about sex at the end. And, you know, who says Tuesday nights are boring? Nobody, right? You know, this is fun. But let me begin by framing our time with a passage that is very familiar, but is actually quite an outstanding passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that this would not just be an academic exercise or looking at things in history or whatever, but this would be transformative for our hearts. And so speak your truth in a fresh way into our hearts tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, uh, much of what I'm looking at is, uh, is drawn, as, as I tell you uh, often, I'm not a, a very original thinker, but I just look for food and I tell you what, what I found. So uh, some of the books we're going to be looking at tonight... Really interesting books. This one here from Shame to Sin by Kyle Harper, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. Oh, so interesting. And this one here, I love the title. When Children Became People. Oh, yeah. The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Oh, come on. These are interesting books. Um, okay, so. Now, before we dive in, it, it'd be good to kind of be clear what we're talking about when i say the word family family what what is a family how would you define a family what are some characteristics of a family you can put them on the chat or you can just shut them out nuclear family okay husband wives kids yeah mom and dad Kids, <laughs> I'm getting a theme here. Mom and dad, kids, mom and dad, kids, right? Siblings, yes. What's that? Aunts and uncles, yeah. Love, love, very good. A community. Dysfunction, yeah, well, it's true, yeah. Now, the thing is, the, the thing is, we don't ask this question because intuitively we have an idea what a family is. Um, yes, we do notice that there are a lot of broken families in this world, dysfunctional families. There's a thing called blended families. And yet we have these qualifiers because we roughly have an idea of what constitutes a family. And so um, this, this one author puts it this way, a family is a group of related people who live together in loving relationship. Father, mother, and children are the core of the family. Now, of course, this could extend to grandparents who are fathers and mothers after all, sometimes to cousins, grandchildren, aunts and uncles, 
and even that nephew that nobody likes. But, but essentially, a family is a group of people who are related to one another. It usually has a mother and a father, usually married, usually married, and children. Now, again, a lot of families, we get it, are, are, are broken. But they're broken in the sense that we have an idea of what a not broken family looks like. So that's a family. Now, I just want to say this. Is that idea of a family that we just described is not self-evident. It's certainly not the idea of the family that we find in the Greco-Roman world. In pagan times, what was a family? Well, family, what a family was, it was, was, was the father. The pater familias, the head of the household. And so the family was the father and his property. Which essentially would include his wife and his kids and his slaves and, yeah. Now, in our age, we do talk about love. Sometimes we talk about the bonds of love. But again, that's not necessarily a requirement in a Roman family. Now, don't mistake, like, there was love within Roman families. Of, of course there was. But it was not required. It was not essential to a family. In fact, what was essential to a Greco-Roman family was not so much love, but duty. Now, both Christians and pagans believed that human beings were social creatures. Okay, so they had that in common, that we needed one another for sure. But for the Greeks and the Romans, the center of life, the center of life was not the family. The center of life was the polis, the city, the larger society. Whereas within the Christian world, the family stood at the center. And so there's going to be clashes between the state and the family. Does that sound familiar? It, it, I mean, one of the big challenges we have in the Western world now is who has authority over the family or over children? Is it the state or is it the parents? It's a big debate right now in Canada and, 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 and in the Western world. But Christians, they, they saw the family was, was, was at the center. And they also thought that the family should be held together by bonds of love. Now, I know, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. For you younger people, that's like a scratch CD. For you really young people, that's a corrupted MP3 file. Okay, so you're with me so far? Okay. But theology shaped anthropology. So remember the story of the Greek gods? Just what a lovely family they were. Except for the cutting off of the genitals and the blood um, and swallowing up your children and, and raping. And... Okay, you think about the story of the Greek and the Roman gods and how violent it was. What would a family look like given this? Now, let me ask you this. This is kind of a fun question. 
Again, theology shapes anthropology. Let's say there is no God. Let's say you have an atheist understanding of the world. What, um, what would that look like? Are you doing that, Mike? What in the world is going on there? Oh, there we go. We're back. That was weird. Uh, did you guys see that? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's weird. Okay. Um, let's say there is no God. No. What would a, what would constitute a family? Just throw out some ideas. What, what, if, if there is no God, if that's your if that's your starting point, then how would you define a family? Okay, mom, dad. Would you use the language of mom and dad, or would you use a? No, just if if you're operating from a from a perspective where there is no God, would you use the language of mom and dad, or would you use the language of a birth parent or something like that? I'm just saying if, if you're all. Oh, I know, I know, but I would I would argue that that's a hangover from a Christian from 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 a Christian idea. Birth parents, yeah. Yeah, people who are dependent upon each other for survival. Absolutely. I think that's really good. I had a friend of mine um, who is a, um, a sociobiologist. So he was a follower of a guy named Edward O. Wilson. Um, and Edward O. Wilson would say societies form because human beings uh, want to propagate their genes. And so men tend to sleep, sleep around a lot more because they want to propagate their genes. They have a better chance if they sleep around with many women. Women are a little more reserved because they only have so many reproductive years. And so that explains why women are the way they are. But this is a, it's, it's a biological deterministic way of looking at the world. And so if you use that lens to look at society, if you look at the question of a family, I think it's gonna look a little bit different. And so the point is simply this, theology shapes anthropology. Now, what's the Christian view of God? Well, who is God? Well, we, through God's revealed word, we realize that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, in a loving divine dance, a perichoresis, where the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the love shared by the Father and the Son is the person of the Holy Spirit. We read in 1 John that God is love. We read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing uh, was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcoming. And so in the Trinity, we get a picture of perfect love. In the Trinity, we don't get betrayal. <laughs> no wolfing down your offspring, no cutting off genitals, no rape, but there's love and there's unity. And the God that the Christians worshipped was a model of perfect love. Where Kronos, <laughs> Zeus, and the gang only give us models to live down to. Now, this view of the family affected so many things, and it affected how one viewed sexual intercourse. So let's talk about sex. 
See everybody sitting up a little bit. All right. <laughs> How was sex seen in the Greco-Roman world? Well, it was seen pretty much everywhere. <laughs> Um, you wouldn't know this. If you went to a museum today and you see, you know, a display of, you know, of the glories of Rome and what you'd see is, you know, maybe, uh, you know, pe people, you know, the, the, the attire that the Romans would wear or, you know, the different inventions of the, of the Romans, you know, they'd be talking about the aqueducts and they would be talking about the Roman baths and those sorts of things. And then that, that's fine. Um, you talk about Roman philosophy or maybe the Greco-Roman philosophy. It's wide streets, it's advanced uh, facilities. But what, what you wouldn't see, but which was on display pretty much everywhere you looked, was just how pornographic the Greco-Roman culture was. Especially in the first to third centuries A.D., Lamps and clothing were covered with really obscene images. Most of the decorations in the home would be more fitting that of a brothel. Often there were images of gods and demigods doing their thing. And so images would be both pornographic and religious. And that's always a deadly combination. When you combine the pornographic with the spiritual, it gets quite dark. And so what was the purpose of sex in the Greco-Roman world? Well, the, the Greco-Roman world has some pretty interesting views on the purpose of sex and the context in which it could be expressed. Some Roman thinkers thought that sex just got in the way and it hindered serious thinking that needed to be done. <laughs> you know, sex, I mean, it's there, but it's just stopping me from doing all my work. And so I know I read of a, a Stoic philosopher who kept a concubine on hand. And so he's working on his stuff. But when the urge came, he settled his urge and then went back to work. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Now, interestingly, even though sex was omnipresent, it really didn't have much of a place in Greek or Roman philosophy. Again, sex was an inconvenience that needed dealing with. But other than that, it had very little place in one's moral life, good or bad or right or wrong. In fact, the issues with sex were more to do with shame and the benefit of, of, of the polis of society. Still, sex was everywhere you looked in day-to-day -day life in the Roman Empire. The obscene images would find their way into the home, on the walls and homes. So you'd see that. Children would be faced with these images as they grew up. It was simply part of the air they breathed. And we were like, oh, that's terrible. Except we read that the average age that kids look at porn these days in Canada is around nine or 10 years old. And so. That's it. Or, or younger, yeah. But it's interesting, though, it's interesting, because in the Roman world, the idea, this is important, the idea that children were innocent and needed protection isn't really an idea in the Greco-Roman world. Again, that's the thesis of this book, When Children Became People, is that it was only because of the Christian Revolution that children became human beings that needed protection. What was visualized became experienced for a lot of the young. Parents who sent their sons, or fathers, it wouldn't be the parents, the father who sent their sons to be tutored, 
expected, they expected that their son, that part of the education they received would be the penetration from an older male tutor. And so the practice of pederasty, the love of men with young men, was part of the fabric of the Greco-Roman world. They're male, the male partners, yes. Yeah, so young men would be sent off to be mentored, to be tutored, but part of the tutoring, part of the expectation is that the older tutor would penetrate the younger child, the, the, the young man, he'd probably be about 12, 13, 14 years old. In fact, there are plenty of essays, and I was reading through some of these last week, exalting the benefits of sex with young men over young women. Now you have to see this because in the Greco-Roman world, sex was indiscriminate. It didn't matter if you were with a male or a female. Again, often males were, the young man was preferred over a, over a female. What was key to men was one, being in a position of dominance, so the question of being active or passive is a big issue. If you're passive, it's a picture of shame or subservience. Secondly, is a question of whether or not the skin of the recipient was smooth. So it could be a young man or it could be a young woman. Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, different Tom Holland. Um, he's written a very interesting book on this. And this is what he says. He says, in Rome, Men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves, their sexual needs, than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. In Latin, the same word, male, meant both ejaculate and urinate. Now, because of this indiscriminate view towards sex, combined with the preference of male, sometimes over female, plus a devaluation of female in society, which we looked at last week, there was a huge population imbalance in the Greco-Roman world. We talked about that last week, but there was a lot of more men than there were women. Again, in the Greco-Roman world, there was no issue of choosing boys over women. Uh, the, the issue was is, is if the boy was young, but once he, once he was old enough to shave, then there's restrictions. And also, if the if the if the male was was freeborn, if he was a citizen, then it was hands off. But if he was a slave, then, it, then anything went. Talk about adultery. Adultery was looked down upon in the Greco-Roman world, but not for religious reasons. It was not seen as this is sinful or this is somehow wrong, but it was looked down upon for political ones. It was seen as wrong for a man to sleep with another paterfamilias' wife. Why? Because it was sinful? No, because it caused shame to the family. So it was a political violation, not a moral violation. Now, <laughs> this is going to, this is really interesting stuff. Um, adultery was an issue in the Greco-Roman world, as it is throughout all of human history. Um, but in the Greco-Roman world, you have to realize, is a lot of men, they married when they were older, and they married very young, young girls. We just call them what they were, they were girls, like they, uh, as young as 11 or 12 years old. But as these girls grew up, and the man grows older and older, there was a danger that 
that a, a wife who's still quite young would be, she would sleep with a younger man. And older men were always on guard against younger men who tried to sleep with their wives. Now, here's the explanation as to why this was a danger. And this, this is just, I just find it really interesting. It's, it's, it's the way the, um, the uh, physiology was understood in the second century and the third century. And it was understood that men, that young men, their insides were wet and hot. <laughs> I'm making this up. It was wet and hot and just boiling. And so when it's, it just had to be relieved. Where, where, where older men were cold and dry. <laughs> they were, they were seen as cold and dry. And many of the many of the treatments for older men were a way to kind of raise this cold temperature and kind of, you know, moisten what is dry. But this was the understanding of the time. <laughs> so, sorry, I got to focus here. Um, young men, young men would need to expel some of the built up fluid boiling up inside. Hot stuff, yes. Uh, so there was a danger. There was a danger with young men roaming streets looking for persons, male or female, to have sex with. So, thus the rise of prostitution. There were brothels and prostitution, and they played a key role in society. Because this is a place um, where, where that could be a legitimate outlet for young men. There were plenty of prostitutes in the city. Many of the prostitutes were girls who were quote unquote rescued from the from the dung heap uh, by pimps for this purpose. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, there's only two groups of people that rescued baby girls from the dung heap. They were Christians and pimps, but they rescued the girls for different reasons, very different reasons. In fact, in the Roman world, it was thought that men ought to be able to reign in their lusts. Now, this is really interesting. Man, it's just like, um, if you were a man, a young man, and you slept around a lot, if you were always sleeping around, that was looked down upon. And, and it was looked down upon because there was a real danger if you slept with too many people. And you know what the danger was? It wasn't sickness. I mean, but that's, that was actually the result. What it was is that the more a man slept around, the more womanish he became. Uh-huh. Isn't that weird? It's because you're expelling, expelling all that vital fluid. You're expelling, expelling. You are actually emasculating yourself isn't that strange like but this is this is what i'm saying it's a different way of thinking isn't it a little yes <laughs> there you go
and an arrow. So there'd be a coin with an arrow on the ground pointing to where the process. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's interesting because men were encouraged to go to prostitutes because it means they're not going to sleep around with somebody's wife. And in fact, in the Roman world, what was considered, think of the word modesty. Modesty meant that you take a trip to a brothel rather than sleep with somebody's wife. That was being modest. That whole, uh, I, I, can't, I can't go into it because of time, but that whole idea of um, if you sleep around too much, you emasculate yourself, you become less of a man. For those of you who know a little bit about church history, you'll know that in the fourth century, in the fifth century, well, even a little bit earlier, in the fourth century in particular, there's this um, desert monastic movement, people going into the desert to become monks. Like, what's with the monks? Because these monks were, were, wouldn't sleep with anyone. They're like, I'm a monk. I'm just, you know, I resist temptation. Or like, what are you guys doing? Well, interesting way is in, 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 the, in the thinking of the time is that by not having sex and by being in complete control of your body, it was actually a picture of what it meant to be a true man. In the Greco-Roman, isn't it interesting? Anyhow, we can't get into that. There'll be another class. We'll talk about that sometime. Um, okay, so marriage. Let's talk about marriage. We talked about this a little bit last week, but girls that grew up in the home, um, girls that grew up in the home were few in number, and they were married off at a really young age, often at the age of 11 or 12. And Roman custom dictated that the paterfamilias had, had to pay a significant dowry to get her off her ha his hands into the hands of her new husband. And, and this would be such a financial drain that, um, you know, that's why they wouldn't have too many, too many uh, daughters, right? Now, the idea of, uh, of a daughter in the family, we, we talked about this last week, but she had no real rights for anything. In fact, a, a baby had no ontology. A baby had no, no reality until the paterfamilia says, all right, you can keep her. We'll keep her. And then she became a person. And then as she grows up as a person, she is the property of the father. But when she marries off, what happens? She becomes property of the, of the new husband. Now, do you guys ever... Have you, have you ever seen the, the practice of carrying your bride over the threshold into a new home? Do you know where that comes from? It comes from this time period where, where, where a woman is, has, a, has, has an identity under the paterfamilias, but when she's married off, there's a moment while she's leaving the one home, going to the next home, where she has no, no identity. And so she's actually being carried across the threshold. And when she's put down, now she belongs to him. And you thought you were being all romantic. You're doing it. So, yeah. The, the, the problem is, <laughs> is that the new husband was often more interested in money than the bride herself. <laughs> I'll explain it to you later. <laughs> um. During the wedding, during uh, the, the, the wedding ceremony, pornography was still on display. Dodging, dodgy songs were sung. 
The assumption was that the wife was going to be an unwilling participant in the wedding night. If she's 12 years old, you can understand why. And one French historian put it this way, the wedding night took the form of legal rape. And as she grows up, her, her life isn't getting much better. She would experience a life of abortion, contraception. And the reality is that her babies could be killed. And married life could be miserable. But then why expect something different? If theology shapes anthropology, what did marriage among the gods look like? While Juno fumed and plotted revenge, while Jupiter left a trail of bastard demigods across the Mediterranean world, we become what we worship. If divinity behaves this way, then humanity will follow. So marriage was often loveless, miserable, and not all of them, but, they, but often this was the case. Divorce was easy. Though if a woman left her husband, um, it'd be a good chance that she was, uh, it meant starvation. Now, at this point in this evening, um, I just want to say that this picture that I've just drawn for you, I mean, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? But you have to ask the question, why is it shocking? Why does it bother you? Why does part of you say, this is ridiculous? Because this was the air that people breathed. These are the realities that faced people in, in the Greco-Roman world. So imagine trying to be a Christian living in this context. It, it would be very, very difficult. And it was imperative for Christians to somehow resist these ideas floating around. And so there's actually quite a bit of writing at this time period of, of church leaders preaching to the congregation or writing letters saying, don't be part of this. Don't be part, don't participate in this. Because you have a, believe it or not, back then Christians flirted with the ways of the world. Can you believe it? Yeah. <laughs> what a shock. I mean, one guy, Tertullian, he talks about this. He says, he talks about the dangers of the theater. And he says, are we not in like manner enjoined to put away from us all immodesty? On this ground, again, we are excluded from the theater, which is the very home of immodesty. Even the harlots, victims of the public lust, are brought upon the stage. Their misery increased because there they are in the presence of their own sex. So he says, these women are brought on the stage. They're stripped down. They're naked. What makes it worse is that people who are watching them include women. Right? from whom they alone usually hide themselves. They're paraded publicly before every age and every rank, their abode, their gains, their praises are all set forth in earshot of those who should not hear such things. How is it then that the things which defile a man and going out of his mouth are not regarded as doing so when they go into his eyes and his ears? You're taking this stuff in. It's doing a number on you. Be careful what you bring into your mind. Now, part of you are thinking, well, it's just a theater, David. I love the theater. Well, okay, except this theater in this time period was, was highly pornographic. There was live sex in most of the, the, the shows. Like actual full-on sexual intercourse on the stage. And there's one other aspect. 
is that often in, in, the, in the Roman plays, you would put into the plays a condemned criminal. And in the play itself, you would kill him. He would actually be killed in the story. And that's why Tertullian is saying, what are you thinking going to this? These things are shaping your soul. Now, not surprisingly, one of the things that happens in this time period, we've talked about this, is the population begins to drop dramatically. And so more and more uh, immigration, forced immigration from conquered people, bringing them into the cities was required. And also just the death rate. I mean, uh, when you talk about uh, the disease in the city, uh, there was, there's a lot of disease from the water that was drank, from the narrow streets, from the, I mean, it's just a very, and, and you live within a society where the population is constantly changing and people are dying and coming and dying and coming. It, it's a very dangerous society. People also were not having children. And you think about it, a lot of these young girls, their, their systems were wrecked by the time they were actually able to bear a child. Now, there's an interesting book that I want to tell you about. It's a book that was just written a few years ago by a woman named Mary Ebershad. And, and the book is called um, How the West Really Lost God. And do you know what her thesis is? She argues that the West lost God when it stopped having children. I was doing some, uh, just some looking uh, research this week. Um, what percentage of people in Vancouver live in a single dwelling household? That means just one person in the household. 40%. That's, that's pretty high. 40%. It's 30% in Canada. In Holland, it's around... 40, 45%. And, and this is Eberstadt's thesis. She says, how do you teach about the fatherhood of God when they're in a society where, where fathers are absent? How do you teach about, at Christmas time, how do you teach about the life of Mary in a world that's rejected motherhood? How do you teach the incarnation when people do not have children? And how do you teach about the family when marriage is disappearing? And I, I mentioned this last week, but if you actually look around the world, and I did, I, I, I did some research this past week, um, just in terms of how many countries actually have a replacement population fertility rate, very few, very few. Now, this this growing culture of death mirrors the Roman Empire. Now, it's funny because even, it's, it's not funny, but it's, it's interesting. But even in the Roman Empire, one of the emperors realizes, wait a minute, the way our society is trending is not looking good. And so Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor in the time of the birth of Jesus, right? Uh, Caesar Augustus, um, under his leadership, Rome actually experienced unprecedented prosperity. The empire stretched from Great Britain to Egypt. Um, there's an emerging middle class, things, things, people should have been happy, but nobody was having babies. 
With all the wealth, people grew used to leisure and pleasure. And the one thing they stopped having was children. Marriage rates plummeted. Instead, there's plenty of incentives to numb yourself with pleasure and drift from orgy to orgy taking place over gluttonous dinner parties. Now, Augustus sees this, and so he, he, he lays out a law. He outlawed adultery, fornication, and homosexuality. That's what he outlaws. He taxed men who remain single. Hey, if you remain single, I'm going to up your taxes. And he taxed married children, married couples who did not have children as an incentive to get them to have children. And what was the result? It made no difference. It made no difference. Uh, one uh, Roman historian, Tacitus, says, um, and yet marriages and the rearing of children did not become more frequent. So powerful were the attractions of childlessness. And it's interesting, Augustus himself was imposing these laws. He was married three times, only had one kid. So, But this, this plummeting birth rate, again, this is what we see happening in our world today. So I was looking at, um, so a replacement birth rate is what? It's around, it's 2.1, it's 2.2. That's what a replacement birth rate is. Um, what's Canada's birth rate? Oh, Ray, come on, man. 1.28, you're within two hundredths of it. Well done. You, what was Canada's birth rate in 1960? 1960, what do you think? Yeah, 3.8, 3.8, yeah. Yeah, back then, yeah. Um, China's population, same thing. China's population is, um, is well below um, a replacement population. You know what South Korea says? Lowest in the world, 0.89. 0.89. Well, it's yeah. So this is this is what uh, the imperial. Uh, this is what um, this one author says. He says the imperial government in Rome, with all of its marvelous achievements, including clean water, the rule of law, the suppression of piracy, could not compel its citizens to trust in the future. Lacking that hope, pay attention to that. Lacking that hope, Romans did not want children. And so they didn't have them, or at least they didn't raise them. Instead, they put their effort into the pursuit of pleasure. And we read stories of, of Romans at this time expending lots of money on these burial, beautiful burial places for their pets. For their pets. Now, I think there's a correlation between a lack of hope in society and not having children. And we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. But this is the air that people breathe. Okay, I'm just going to pause here. Just, oh, man, I've got lots to talk about tonight. Um, but let me pause here. We've been going through lots of stuff. Any any comments, questions, right? What birth control methods were there in those days? There weren't birth controls. They probably didn't have comments. Why weren't women pregnant and so yeah, okay, so what birth controls did they have? There was, there was um, a form of medicine, form of medicine that women would take um, in order to induce a miscarriage, but would often kill the moms while inducing it. 
So that that was one of the very com common ways. So it was uh, where birth control was. Well, infanticide was was the was quite common. You would just so the paterfamilias would look over the, the girl, and if it's a girl, if you already had a girl, he would just say no, and then the mother or whoever would have to take and just throw her out. Yeah. Well, I would just say this, like, everything is, the more we read these things with history, it's like, history is literally repeating itself. Yeah. Easing back in real gentle as it normalizes, it doesn't seem crazy to everyone, but all the stuff is clearly happening. Right. So, Keenan made this point that the, the history seems to be repeating itself. I and mean, there are some similarities, and and there is, there is, yeah, there is a sense that, uh, and I've said this before, where, where there are increasing parallels between our society now and some of the practices of the Roman Empire. It's not a one-to-one, -one, there's a lot of differences too, but uh, there are some similarities, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you talk, talk about killing the girls. Yeah, how, how do you keep up the population? Well, you didn't. The population was, was, was declining steeply. And so the only way you could replace the population was through conquering and, and forcing people uh, to move into the cities. That's what happened. And the other thing you would also have, have happened is you would have um, girls who were slaves um, without any identity, really, um, still around, um, that would make up some of the differences, but you wouldn't marry them because they're slaves, right? Yeah, that's a big, a big problem. Like I did, um, one of the biggest issues in China, as you know today, is that there's a huge difference between the number of males and the number of females. We talked about that last week. There's a huge difference between male and female in China. But if you go into the countryside, there are girls, but they are called Tehuko. They are called um, Te black, black, black identity. They have no identity. And so they actually don't have any identity in the country. And so whenever some, when a government official goes to a country, uh, to a uh, town in the countryside, all the girls run and hide. Because they're, Ill they're, they're illegally living. Yeah. Now this, this is the air that people breathe. This is the reality of life. So when we started, we talked about family. What is a family? You see how alien that picture of family really is. Christianity, um, when it came on the scene, um, initially the Romans uh, left Christians alone because they thought it was a variation of Judaism. They thought it was a, a form of Judaism and Judaism was legal within the Roman empire. And so the, Christian, uh, the Romans left the Christians alone until the leaders and the Jewish leader says, hey, these Christians aren't with us. <laughs> they are their own creature. And then a lot of times um, they were thought of as being these uh, part of these mystery religions or um, they were seen. And so they weren't necessarily persecuted at first, but later on they became persecuted. Why? Well, there's something about Christianity that threatened the Romans. 
And in partly it had to do with the Christian's refusal to participate in Roman practices regarding the family. There's this famous letter. I think I have it in your notes. I just give you a snippet of it. You should read the whole thing. I've, I've, I think I've quoted this book in seven of my classes. Um, but it's a letter. It's an anonymous letter to a fellow named Diognetus in the second century, so in the 100s. And this guy is making a case. So, so this is famous letter. And in the letter, he's trying to tell the Romans, hey, uh, Christians were not that much of a threat. But let me tell you about who we are. And this is what he says. He says, Christians, who are Christians? Well, they marry, as everyone else does. They beget children. You see that little, the little dig? Yeah, these Christians, they marry. And they have children. And then what do they say? But they do not destroy their offspring. Ooh. <laughs> they have a common table. You can come and eat with us. What was he saying? But not a common bed. <laughs> they are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. You have to read the whole thing. It's, it's really powerful. And, and, and the Romans, they hated the Christians because of their way of living especially when it came to marriage, sex, and the family. It was in such a contrast to the way the Romans lived. And because Christians, they, they argued for what was seen as something ridiculous. They said, as Christians, they practiced chastity and purity and even lifelong celibacy. And they would say, the Christians said, you know, women, women should not sleep around before they get married. And all the Romans said, huzzah, we agree. And then they said, yeah, and also men should not sleep around before they get married. And they're like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Yes, yeah. Now, it's interesting. In Latin, there are 25 words for a prostitute, but no words for a male virgin. Because that was like, it's impossible. That's an oxymoron, a male virgin, right? You know, you're, you're supposed to. And one of the philosophers, this is the, the, the uh, father of uh, anatomy, human anatomy, is uh, a fellow named Galen. Uh, he says this really interesting thing about the early Christians. Look what he says. I think I have your quote, the quote there. Their contempt of death is patent to us every day. And likewise, their restraint and cohabitation. They don't sleep with each other. They don't live, shack up with each other. For they include not only men, but also women who refrain from cohabiting all their lives. And they also number individuals who in self-discipline and self-control have reached a peak, not inferior to that of genuine philosophers. Now, what's he saying? This is so interesting. This is Galen. He's a philosopher. Now, a philosopher cares about what? Right and wrong. Living the good life. The moral life. Galen, he's, 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 he's beside himself because he says, these Christians... They're not sleeping around. They're not cohabitating. They're not doing any of these things. He says, these Christians are living moral lives. In fact, more moral than our philosophers. But that doesn't make sense. Because obviously what they believe is bogus. 
and yet they're living moral lives. And in the in the in the Greco-Roman mind, is that if you're living a good life, it means you're adhering to a philosophy that is true. And he's like, these guys are living good lives, but the philosophy can't be true. So he doesn't, he's trying to make sense of it. That's so cool. So what was it about this weird group of people called Christians that what made them so happy, even in their chastity? <laughs> Again, the Romans were, were puzzled with them. I mean, they, they say things like, don't you realize that you have sexual urges that need releasing? Don't you realize that if you don't do it, your insides will boil over? <laughs> well, the church said, no, hey, hey, the only proper context for sexual intercourse is that of a covenant of marriage between a husband and wife. Everything else, everything else is offside. And they're like, what? And, and the Christian said something, he says, you know what? We believe that we have freedom and the willpower to say no. You don't have to give in to your urges. Just, just say no. And it's interesting, it's this picture of freedom, and we're going to come back to that, where the Greco-Roman world is about faith. Ah, oh, the gods have aligned that this is the way that a human being has to be. They boil over, they have to have sleep around with prostitutes. It's just the way of the world, the way of life. And the Christian said, no, man, you've got free will. You don't have to sleep around. And so to Christians, what was the secret to a happy marriage? Well, one, they cared about a happy marriage. And Christians would describe the mystery of marriage. For Christians, marriage was not just about a business arrangement to get money as a dowry. It wasn't about an alliance between two paterfamilias. But it was a sacred bond, a sacrament instituted by God that made a husband and a wife one flesh. Now, everything that I've said to you tonight about the Greco-Roman world, right? And marriage and sex and all those things. Okay, keep that in your mind. And listen to these words. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we read that, and in our culture today, if you read that, you'd be like, ah, oh, that's the conservative Christians and the, all the headship and, you know, husbands and wives submitting. And uh, in light of what I've just said, about the Greco-Roman world. How does that sound? 
It is it is revolutionary, isn't it? It's completely revolutionary. Husbands love your wife. Why? Well, I, I mean, I like maybe I like love. Okay, even if I do love her, I'm going to sacrifice myself as a paterfamilias for a deformed male, according to Aristotle. I mean, this, this is revolutionary stuff. From the point of view of the Roman tradition, the single most revolutionary thing in Christianity was Paul's startling instruction, husbands, love your wives. You know, in the Roman world, the wife was his property. She belonged to the husband. Children were also his property. Children are vulnerable. But Paul says, love your wives. Again, to the Romans, they may love their wives. Could happen, but not die for them. Now, what Paul teaches only makes sense is that women are fully, magnificently human. Right? If she is a person made in the image of God, Paul says to husbands that they should regard their wife's, their wife's life as more precious than their own. E, in light of this, this is huge. Do you see how revolutionary this is? Okay. So... What time do we got? You know, I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to be talking for a while. I'm going to give you guys a chance to chat for, for just for a few moments. Think of what marriage, family, and sex are today. What are some of the characteristics? How does they, how does marriage, family, and sex today differ from this Roman vision of marriage and the family? Where there's similarities, where are there some differences? Uh, just take a few moments and don't use this time to go, oh, I know the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, just talk about what were some good things and some bad things. Where are some um, uh, things where there's, there's similarities and where are there some differences, okay? I'm just going to give you a few minutes to talk about this. Okay. Do I dare ask? <laughs> what are some observations that came out of your conversation? Anybody want to share or... or... What's shared at the table stays at the table. Yeah, I got something here. Yeah, all right, Keaton, go ahead. Yeah, okay, listen up, guys. The point that now he introduces the gender support form, and I brought up as well that statistically women are actually growing their Yeah, so Tina makes a point that uh, there is a lot of gender selection, decreasing number uh, amount of gender selection in the West now, um, and 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 people can choose if they are going to choose, they'll typically choose a a, a boy over a girl. And I, I shared a story last week, but in, in China, some some of the experiences that I had, but it's interesting because. Um, there was a member of parliament who put forward a bill or a suggestion to have an open de debate about presenting a bill to limit or to restrict gender selection as a way of protecting women. And it was shut down by a lot of women and not realizing that 
if this keeps going, the people who are getting hurt in this is always women. Um, it was shut down by many of the women in peace. They voted against it. Which is a cultural issue. Well, he brought it up because it was a cultural issue. He's saying this is something that's happening more and more in Canada is that there's gender selection and girls are being aborted and boys in, in the preference of boys. He says, this is actually harmful towards women. And he wanted to have a conversation about this in parliament, but it was shut down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Looking at the past, and now there's a huge difference, yeah. Yeah, less marriage, less coming in families. <laughs> Nowadays, people with pets, they often walk them down the streets like they're babies. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the differences that we see within our society, and this is what, what came out of the question, is this idea of, of children are seen as an expense, uh, a lot of work, um, and, and kind of an option, and maybe a less appealing option than a pet in some ways, which is a very different way of thinking. Um, and there's... And, and there's there's reasons for this approach to family that is very different from the Greco-Roman world. And it has to do with uh, how we see the self and the role of the individual. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's certainly, there are some similarities, there are some differences. Um, I find that, uh, in, in, I find it shocking uh, that there was a time when husbands were not expected to love their wives. In the Roman Empire, if you said, oh, you should love your wife, a lot of Romans would tell you, are you kidding me? They would just laugh. I mean, she was property. She's not my equal. Love, where love was taught, is about friendship between men. Lust was reserved for a mistress, a slave, or a pretty young boy. The one place where love was not expected was marriage. And so a guy named John Chrysostom, who was a bishop in Constantinople, in the fourth century, uh, he kind of gets mad because he says he sees a lot of Christians having wedding ceremonies, but they're introducing pagan elements to these wedding ceremonies. So he gets really mad at them. He says the custom of marriages had brought as as brought in this plague, or rather, not of marriages, certainly not, but our own foolishness. What are you doing, man? I don't think he said it that way, but I thought. Yeah. What are you doing, man? Don't you know who where you are? You marry a wife for chastity and and to have children. Then what is the meaning of these harlots? So that there may be more gladness, someone says. So I guess they're inviting harlots to be part of the wedding. Madness is more like it. 
You're insulting your bride. You're insulting women you invited. Marriage is a sweet ointment. So why do you bring in a foul stench of the dunghill when you're preparing your ointment? <laughs> so Chrysostom is known as golden mouth, just so you know, as a preacher. Is marriage a theater? It is a mystery, a type of a mighty thing. Even if you have no reverence for marriage, have some reverence for the thing it represents. Marriage is a type of the church, and you bring harlots into it. A great mystery is being celebrated. Out with the harlots, out with the profane. And how is it a mystery? Well, they come together and the two make one, making not a lifeless image or even the image of anything on earth, but of God himself. They come about to be made one body. See again, a mystery of love. Oh, come on, John Chrysostom, well done. And he doesn't pull his punches. Yeah. The Christian marriage was a mystery, a covenant, a union of two souls becoming one flesh. It mirrored the very love of Christ and his church. And children were an offspring of this love. And unlike the pagans, Christians looked to a home where love and commitment abounded. And so, so many of the things we think are natural in the family actually aren't. That's the point of making Things that we think of natural, like husband and wife loving each other and children being raised up and being protected and being loved, because they're vulnerable. These ideas are not perennial, but they're part of a revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. Now I'm going to add one more thing. One more thing. And that is the understanding of sexual abuse. Many of you have heard the story of Rachel Den Hollander. Do you know who she is? Um, she was uh, one of the many girls who was abused um, as a, a U.S. gymnast by the by by the doctor, by the team doctor, a guy named Larry Nassar. Uh, and over his time as a, as a doctor, and especially as a, as a as an Olympic gymnastic doctor, a Team USA doctor, he ended up abusing by 200, at least 265 girls. And, um, and he used his position to exploit girls who were placed in his care. And before the judge laid out a sentence on this art, uh, Den Hollander, who's a devout Christian, gave a 37-minute testimony. And I actually watched this testimony. You can watch it on YouTube. It's powerful. Oh, it's powerful. And this is, but she concludes, she says these words, she says, Judge Aquilini, Aquilina, I plead with you as you deliberate the sentence to give Larry, send a message that these victims are worth everything. I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. Thank you. And in the end, the judge imposed prison sentences between 40 and 175 years. And if you know the story, actually in the summer, Larry Nassar was murdered in prison. He was killed in prison. Oh. They trusted him and, and he just betrayed their trust. Yeah. Well, now this story of abuse... I mean, it's, 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 I mean, all of us, we, we hear the story and we're just like, 
And it's one story of thousands of stories which occur every year, most of which are not, not even reported. The worst crime we many of our society considers is pedophilia. Uh, and we've seen, uh, even within prisons, um, the ones who commit pedophilia are often killed, as is what happened to Larry, Larry uh, Nasser just a few months ago. So what is a little girl worth? Everything, people would cry. But again, we had you asked a Roman in the Greco-Roman world, how much is a girl worth? You get a number of answers. Well, she's free if you find her in the trash heap. If you're buying from a slave trader, well, maybe she's worth eight months' wages. If you're thinking of a prostitute, well, then it's more pay as you go. And what you would pay is be roughly the price of a loaf of bread to be with a prostitute. So how much is a little girl worth? Everything or nothing. The difference depends on where and when you're living. And I want to pause here just for a moment because I realize that Christians have been the source of a lot of abuse in the church for centuries. And I'm not denying this at all. In fact, this Larry Nasser identified, he said that he was a Christian. Um, yeah. And it's easy for people to point this out and say, oh, look at the Christians, look how Christians have acted. And, and, and it's true. But the, why are we so angry? Why are we so angry even when we hear Christians committing abuse? Is because of our Christian view that every human being, especially children, especially little girls, are worth are worth a lot and are should not be subject to such evils as abuse or pedophilia or whatever it happens to be. And that's the point that needs to be made. Where do we even find the category to name this as sexual abuse? The, the idea of sexual abuse, this concept doesn't even exist in the Roman world. This is what the guy Kyle Harper says. Timothy, you have my book, right? Yeah, okay. Um, he says, the complete violent exploitation of women without any claim to civic protection was simply as a problem in its own right, invisible. Women were exploited all the time. And our modern sense of sexual abuse or exploitation would have, would have been nonsensical in the ancient world. What we call abuse was simply sex. And yet when we hear of sexual abuse of the vulnerable, especially women and children, our gut reaction is no. This should not be the case. So where do these ideas come from? Where do the ideas that the life of a girl is as important as the life of a boy? That children need to be protected sexually from adults. That there's something sacred about protecting a child's life from sexual exploitation. That women should not be used or mistreated by men that marriage is a good thing and that husbands should love their wives, that adultery is morally wrong, that sex should never be coerced, rape is, is evil, that sexual expression should be carried out in the protective bonds of covenant marriage between a husband and a wife, and that all forms of abuse are wrong. Where do these ideas come from? They're not self-evident. They've never been around all the time. They are a product of a revolution. 
I like what this one bishop, I'll give you another bishop in, in the second century. He says, do you therefore show show me yourself whether or not you're a, uh, whether or not you're a, an adulterer or a fornicator or a thief or a robber or another form of a thief whether you do not corrupt boys whether you are not in, insolent or a slanderer or passionate or envious or proud or whether you do not sell your children for to those who do these things God is not manifest for those who have set up a market for fornication and established infamous resorts for the young, for every kind of vile pleasure, who do not abstain even from males, males with males, committing shocking abominations, outraging all the noblest and comeliest bodies in all sorts of ways, so dishonoring the fair workmanship of God. These men, I say, revile us for the very things which they are conscious of themselves and ascribe to their own gods, boasting of them as noble deeds worthy of the gods. So he's saying, you know, these guys who are sleeping with young boys, they're doing this because this is a reflection of the gods. He says, this is this should not be. You are destroying these young men who are made in the image of God. And so we come back for the fourth time to our thesis that theology shapes anthropology. It's this revolution of the home that turned the world upside down, that made children human beings of dignity and value. They haven't always been seen as human beings. But for Christians, they knew. They knew that their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, once said, let the children come to me. Let the children come to me. That is Christianity that elevated women, marriage, family, and placed sex in a context where love and self-sacrifice could flourish. And I think this is a revolution that we can actually boldly proclaim. We can boldly proclaim this, this, uh, this revolution. I think this is a revolution that our world so desperately needs to recapture. And so we've covered a lot of material tonight. Um, there's so much more that we could have talked about. It's so interesting this time period. Um, if you have questions along the way, feel free to reach out and uh, ask me questions. Next week, we're going to be talking about work, understanding of work, as well as the idea, even the this idea that um, of, of humility. Where does this idea of humility come from? So we're going to look at lots more interesting things, but uh, I've, oh, look at that, 829. Come on, look at that. Oh, I, look at that. Got one minute to spare. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.